So it's a free feed, so please stick around. It'd be great to talk about what we've preached about tonight with you all. All right, let's pray before we begin. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your goodness towards us. We thank you, Lord, that you love us and you call us into your presence. We thank you, Father, that you do truly want us to encounter you, that you provide the means through your Son. And we pray, Lord, to reflect upon that tonight. We also see the goal of your presence as well, that you desire for heaven to come to earth. We pray this in your Son's precious name. Amen. How do you approach the unapproachable? How do you approach the unapproachable? Most people in life are pretty approachable. You can go up to anyone in the street, in the shops, and approach them, speak to them. But there are some people in life you just can't simply approach, even if you wanted to. You can't simply walk into Buckingham Palace and have afternoon tea and bickies with the Queen. You can't just simply walk into the Oval Office of the President and demand to have lunch with him. You can't simply walk into the lodge with the Prime Minister's president residence and have breakfast with him at your own will or whim. You can't simply do these things. These people are unapproachable. They're special. They have positions of authority and power, which means that they are different kinds of people than the ordinary kind of person. Now, you might be able to say you've been in their proximity or their presence. You might be able to say that you were in the crowd when the queen drove by and gave you a little wave to you and you waved back to her. You might be able to say you were in the crowd when the president was giving his inauguration speech and you saw him become president, elected in. You might be in the audience or the crowd of Q&A when the prime minister is on answering your questions, which I have been in that audience before. It's impressive, I know. The closest I've ever been to Malcolm Turnbull. Now, it's one thing to be in the crowd or in the audience, but it's a whole other thing to be in the very presence right in front of those people, to be invited, for example, over to the Queen's Place for afternoon tea and bickies. For that to happen, you need to be invited in. You need to be invited in by that person. You can't just simply invite yourself over. If you're invited over to see the Queen, it would be her initiative, not yours. And you'd have to meet on her terms. You couldn't just waltz in and do whatever you wanted to do. You'd have to beat her terms. Whilst we can understand this for the Queen, for the President, for our Prime Minister, it's amazing that most people don't actually understand this when it comes to their Creator, to their God. People think they can demand God to just to show up and to prove Himself to them. People think they can demand God to say, My sin doesn't matter. Just accept me as I am, God. Just love me as I am. People think that they're so good and worthy of his presence. Look, God, look at what I've done in my life. Look how good I am. Surely I'm, I'm worthy. I'm doing you a favor by coming into your presence. When it comes to God, we think we can have him on our own terms at our request. But just like the queen, the president, the prime minister, even more than these, God is unapproachable. God is unapproachable. Because he is holy and we are not. He is good and we are not. And we can only approach God if, if he so graciously extends an invitation to us and we are willing to meet on his terms. That's what we have here in the tabernacle. God's gracious 
invitation to his people to approach him, to live in his presence, but on his terms. There is a way and a method people, we, approach God, which we just can't ignore. And this evening, we're going to be looking at the various elements and facets of the tabernacle, starting with the altar and with the entrance, and seeing how these things teach us about who God is and what he is like and who we are and what we are like, and indeed, how we ought to approach him. As we look at the altar and we look at the entrance, there are two things that teach us about how one, how we can approach a holy God. Firstly, God provides the means of his presence. The tabernacle had a courtyard around it that was fenced off by his linen curtains, which meant you couldn't see in to the tabernacle. You couldn't see in where God dwelt. And so if you wanted to come to see God, if you wanted to go into God's presence, you had to go in via the entrance. And the very first thing you saw when you got to the entrance as you came through was this big thing called an altar, burning sacrifices. Now in those very first eight verses, you've got a whole description of what it looks like, overlaid with bronze five feet or seven feet wide. But in reality, just to sum it all down, pretty much the altar was a big ancient barbecue. It was just a big matador barbecue. That's all it was really when it comes down to it, upon which the people would place their sacrifice on and burn it and cook it. That was the first thing they saw. And it taught God's people that if you wanted to approach God, sacrifice had to be made for you. Blood had to be spilt for you. There is no other way into the presence of God except through sacrifice. Why? Why though? Doesn't this make God look like a bloodthirsty God? A bit barbaric? Why does he require a blood sacrifice for him to be able to approach, for you to be able to approach him, for him to enjoy communion with you? Well, the opening verses of Leviticus help us out here, I believe. Let me read them to you. The Lord called to Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting. He said, Speak to the Israelites and say to them, When anyone among you brings an offering to the Lord, bring as your offering an animal from either the herd or the flock. If the offering is a burnt offering from the herd, you are to offer a male without defect. You must present it at the entrance to the tent of meeting so that it will be acceptable to the Lord. You are to lay your hand on the burnt offering and it will be accepted on your behalf to make atonement for you. If God's people needed a sacrifice to be considered acceptable before God, this implies that God's people weren't already acceptable. They weren't acceptable before God. Something was wrong with them. Something in them needed to change, to transpire, in order for them to become acceptable before God and approach Him and enter into His presence. Indeed, this problem that needed changing was the problem of sin. Humanity had come under the corrupting power of sin, which had destroyed our relationship with God and with each other. Our hearts are no longer geared to what is good, but to what is evil. And a holy God cannot dwell who is good, cannot dwell with those whose hearts are geared towards what is evil. A sin must be dealt with if one wants to be acceptable before God and approach Him. 
And the altar teaches us that the cost of acceptance before God is great. The life of another, an animal, who would vicariously take the punishment for sin so that they could come into God's presence and be accepted. The altar reveals that sin is a problem and a big problem at that, but also that it's a costly one as well. Because this sacrifice taught them that their sins deserved death. That's what they deserved. Such a message runs quite contra to what our world believes about itself, doesn't it? We live in a culture that tells us that we're accepted no matter who we are or what we do. We live in a culture that encourages us to be authentic, to be ourselves, for you to do you, to be real and to be honest with yourself. And our world shuts down any kind of idea of sin and shame and regret because to acknowledge those things would make you feel bad and we don't want that. You're doing so much better than you actually are. So just focus on the good. Don't, don't worry about the bad. Just sweep it under the rug. Don't focus on it. But deep down... Being told those things doesn't alleviate the guilt and shame we have when we know when we've sinned and done wrong. We all have done things in the past that we are not proud of, that we regret, that we know are bad, and if people found out, we would be condemned for. Sins we wouldn't want others to know. And sweeping it all under the rug, telling ourselves that we're okay, doesn't make it go away. That guilt just lingers under the surface, like a weight, a pressure on your life. And it makes you feel like an imposter in society. And it only heightens your anxiety because what if someone finds out? What if that sin comes to light and people discover who you really are? What then? The altar reveals that our sin is a heavier burden than our world wishes to admit. And hiding our sin is not the answer. Deep down, we want to be released from its power, its grip on us. In the TV show True Detective, Matthew McConaughey plays this really weird detective named Rust. And he's really famous in the police force for being able to get suspects to confess to the crimes they have committed, like actually committed, not you know, actually getting to say confessions to crimes they haven't committed. He gets them to confess to crimes they have committed. And everyone's wondering, how do you do it? How do you get these people to confess to their crimes? He says this, Everybody knows there's something wrong with them. They just don't know what it is. Everybody wants confession. Everyone wants some cathartic narrative. Everybody's guilty. He identifies that the power to release us from our guilt and shame doesn't lie in hiding our sin, but in confessing it. All we want when it comes to sin is to get it off our chest, so to speak, so we can stop pretending, so we can stop being an imposter and be real to get that pressure, that weight of us, that we have to meet some sort of particular image in society, where we can be honest and real and deal with our sin in a healthy way. Confession is the cathartic narrative that our world so desires. But where do you find that in this world? Where can you go to deal with your sins and to release from its guilt without paying the ultimate price of condemnation? 
without being thrown out of society and ostracized and condemned. Where you'll be accepted once more. That's why we hide our sin. Because we know that if, we, if it gets revealed, even if we reveal it, we'll be punished for it. We need a place to deal with sin. We need confession. But we also need the promise of restoration. Otherwise, we'll never let sin see the light of day. So where do we go? The ancient Israelites, he went to the ancient barbecue. He went to the altar. At the altar, God provided the means for his people to deal with their sin and be restored. At the altar, they were exposed for who they were and saw before them the cost of their sin. And yet such a sign was that they already stood in the grace and mercy of God for grace determined that it was not their cost to pay. When we come to approach God, we look upon a much better sacrifice, a better altar. The altar in Exodus prepares us to receive a much better one than that of the blood of animals. For when we come into the presence of God, the first thing we see is not the altar upon which we put our sacrifice. When we come into the presence of God, the first thing we see, the first thing we are confronted with is the lamb that was slain. Revelation 5 says this, I saw a lamb standing as though he had been slain. When we come into the presence of God, we come face to the face with the crucified one, the living Lord Jesus. In Jesus we see the full weight and cost of our sin, yet we aren't filled with dread and wondering what to do about our sin because seeing Jesus as the lamb that was slain can only mean the danger has passed. The cost has been paid and grace has decreed you are free. That is what our world is crying out for a place where we can confess our sin and live. Better yet, be restored, be accepted again. It's so important we don't lose this image for how one enters the presence of God. For whilst the lamb that was slain is a constant reminder of the weight and the costliness of sin, it's also a constant reminder that that cost has been paid. It's a reminder that we stand in God's grace and mercy before we even entered into his presence. As Romans 5 says, But God demonstrates his love for us in this way. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Before the Israelites even entered into the tabernacle, it's already a sign, the altar is already a sign, that they stand in God's grace and God's mercy. Before we even come before Christ as the sacrificial lamb, as the one who was crucified, we are already standing in God's grace as we come. And when we see him, we're still in God's grace. And the moment we take our eyes off the crucified one, we miss not only the costliness and the weight of our sin, but we also miss experiencing the incredible and wonderful grace of God. Our eyes will eventually fall back on ourselves, looking to ourselves to deal with the unbearable weight of sin, only to be left without 
any way of dealing with it except to try and sweep it all under the rug and tell ourselves we're better than we actually are, to try and hide it once more. God has given you his son as the crucified Savior, as the lamb that was slain, to look upon and to worship, that you might always know the cost of your sin, yes, that you might know its weight, Yes, but that in so doing, in so knowing the cost and the weight of your sin as you look at Jesus Christ, the crucified one, you would not experience dread, but experience grace. You would experience mercy because that's not your cost anymore. Christ has paid that cost. And it's a gift you get to exercise every single time, every time you meet together as a church or on your own when you confess your sin. Not with fear, but with confidence as you approach the throne of grace, as you approach God knowing that cost has been paid. I can stand in his presence because God has provided the means for me to do so. That's the first thing we see. The second second thing we see is that God reveals the goal of his presence. Katie has had a significant influence on my life in regards to the music I listen to. So I have a poor appreciation for a wide variety of music, but Kay has a very wide appreciation for lots of music, and so she has helped me in my kind of you know, appreciation for all kinds of music. And it started with WSFM, sorry, WSFM. She encouraged me to listen to this station. I was a bit skeptical at first. She's a big fan, and now I've become a big fan as well. We both love listening to lots of classics from the 80s and the 90s, and it's been a great amount of fun. And there's one particular classic that keeps coming up every single week, and it came up this week as well. And I think this classic song is a really great commentary on Exodus 27. Like, really great commentary. Yeah, a lot of commentators have worked really, really hard and written volumes of work on this passage, on this book as well. But Belinda Carlisle, in about one verse from a hit song, Heaven is a Place on Earth, has just nailed it for us, I think and explaining what the tabernacle symbolizes. She says, says is the key operative word, says, ooh, baby. Do you know what that's worth? Ooh, heaven is a place on earth. They say in heaven, love comes first. We'll make heaven a place on earth. Ooh. Heaven is a place on earth. What a great song. What a classic, right? And she could not be more correct. Heaven has become a place on earth in the tabernacle. Its whole setup communicates this. And one of the primary ways the tabernacle structure communicated was the entrance. In verse 16, we see this. For the entrance to the courtyard, provide a curtain 20 cubits long of blue and purple and scarlet yarn. And finally, twisted linen, the work of an embroiderer, with four posts and four bases. Before you even walk into the tabernacle and see the altar, you've got to come across the entrance to the, to the tabernacle first, which is this massive curtain with blue and red and, and scarlet, purple, it's the same color, scarlet and red, but running right through it. And the, the purple and the red taught you that you were entering into God's sanctuary. You were entering into a kingdom-like sanctuary. But it's the blue. It's the blue that makes you think, I'm entering into heaven right now. 
the blue sky and heaven is the same word in the Hebrew, Shemayim. So when David says in Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of God, the skies proclaim the work of his hands, he's talking about the same thing, Shemayim, the heavens. Because for them, the ancient Israelite, the heavens were just there, up there, the sky, the dome. And so when the Israelite was walking into the tabernacle and saw the blue and the red and the purple, they were thinking, I am walking into the kingdom of heaven. God's presence is the kingdom of heaven come on earth. For many people today, Christian or not, heaven is not a place on earth. That idea just seems silly in their mind. For them, heaven is a place one goes to upward when they die. And it's good news because they escape this realm. They escape this bad, corrupt reality and their broken and decaying bodies. But the question is, is how does a finite embodied creature like us ascend to dwell with an infinite, transcendent, spiritual God. I mean, it's impossible. We are physically bound to our existence here, but God is spirit and he is everywhere. We exist in time and space. We are limited. We are creaturely. But God exists outside of time and space. He is not limited. He's infinite. How does, how, does, how does a fully embodied human being able to dwell with an eternal and transcendent and all-powerful God? The tabernacle reveals a solution to that problem. It's not that we ascend to God. It's not that we hope one day to go up, but that he makes his way to come down so that we can enter his presence. That was what the entrance represented to that heaven has come down to earth and you're about to enter it. You're about to come into the presence of God. And the goal of God's presence is that heaven, where God is, would be on earth where we are. And this goal is fully realized in Jesus Christ. In John's Gospel, we're reminded by Jesus, in chapter 3, verse 31, he says this, The one who comes from above is above all, and the one who is from the earth belongs to the earth and speaks as one from the earth. Notice, the one who comes from above or from heaven, Jesus is the one who is from above. He has been sent from above to those who belong, belong to the below. Earth is our realm. Jesus' realm is heaven. There is no hope for us to try and transcend our realm because we were made for this realm. We were made for this place. This place is perfect for human flourishing without sin, of course. And so the one who comes from above has come below to bring these two things together. And in John 14, we read this, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus is the one who connects the one who's from above, to us who belong to below. With the goal of bringing these things together. God coming down in Jesus Christ. And we read about this in Revelation 21, don't we? Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. There will still be surf. The sea just means chaos. Just to make that clear. I saw the holy city the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling 
place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. Our hope is not that we will one day go upwards to heaven, that we will escape this place. Our hope is that God and Jesus Christ will fully bring heaven and earth together so that we, with God, would dwell in heaven on earth perfectly. Our hope is that God would do this out of love for us. He does this because he loves us and he wants to dwell with his people. As Belinda Carlisle says, they say in heaven, love comes first. It's true. It's true. It's from love that God brings heaven down to earth. As John's Gospel says, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son. People are either overly optimistic about themselves and where this world is heading, thinking that things are getting better, things are progressing, science is helping us to become better people and better humans to look after this world. Or people are pessimistic and nihilistic about themselves and where this world is heading, seeing all the war that rages around them, all the chaos that ensues, and think things are going to end in destruction. One sweeps all the problems of this world under the rug and says, we're fine, we're doing okay, we're doing better, it's okay. They manufacture a false hope in themselves. And the other leaves us in just dread, thinking there is nothing good in this world. But if the goal of bringing heaven and earth together shows anything, it's that God has not forsaken his creation, but is working towards its restoration. He is radically committed to what is ironically a God-forsaken world to make it new. And we as Christians, we as the church, provide little glimpses, albeit imperfect ones, but little glimpses of what it looks like for heaven to be on earth as God dwells with us by his Spirit. When devastating events occur, when, the, when war rages around us, when our lives and freedoms are threatened, we not fear or turn to dread. We don't become nihilistic, but we pray, your kingdom come. When, our, when we in our personal lives face all kinds of trouble and strife and pain and suffering, when you're experiencing these things in your life, you don't become filled with dread. The world might make you think that way. But you looked in hope and remember the goodness of God who is with you, who is with us, who dwells with us, who by his blood is committed to you, to restoring you, making your things new. The entrance and the altar teach us many things. But to conclude, let me try and sum this all up. The altar and the entrance reveal just how deep the problem of sin really is. And at the same time, that we already stand in the grace of God who takes away our sins and enables us to approach him. The fact that heaven is a place on earth and this was achieved through the sacrifice of God's Son shows that God is committed out of love to restore his people and this world bringing heaven and earth together in Jesus Christ. The church is a powerful witness to this future reality in the present. How? As we confess our sin, 
with the confidence of forgiveness. And as we pray together, your kingdom come. Amen.